Greetings, dear listeners. Whether you like it or not, the woke wars are reaching a boiling point. This week, we invited our old friend Aaron Sibarium of the Washington Free Beacon to talk to us about a particularly egregious development. If you've not been paying attention, your head will spin at some of the details. The conversation went real long, so we split it in two. We get into the philosophical underpinnings of wokeness, we try to give the other side the maximal benefit of the doubt, and get into a broader fight over the permanence of identity politics on both the left and the right in our democracy. That's all for paying subscribers, so if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and join up. You'll not only get bonus podcast content, but also special members-only essays written by Shadi and me, as well as other guests. We hope you'll join us. On to the show. So maybe, 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 maybe a way to start this conversation is about is about sort of like wokeness, right, Aaron? Because I mean, you know, uh, so much, so much that it's it's hard to have conversations about any of this without sort of uh, referring to wokeness. And I mean, um, it's it's how do I put it? Uh, you know, we've discussed it here. I think you and I, when we were working together, I I was always sort of of the. Um, of the opinion, both arguing with you and, and Jason Willick, who came before you that like, you know, this is, this woke stuff is just shit that happens on universities and, you know, whatever it, it, it peters out and pant and sort of the real world, uh, you know, corrects for this. And so I, I think, you know, it's, it's appropriate for me to say that I was quite wrong about that, that like, you know, both you and Jason coming straight out of school and starting to work for us at the American interest were arguing this stuff is real. It's big. It's going to like eat the world. Um, Demir, this has been your blind spot, though. I think that the last two years, ever since these issues have come to the forefront, you've consistently no, no, but so, I, I the mean, importance I, of these issues. I was about to even say, you know, I mean, just to even kick us off on this discussion is, uh, you know, not just uh, a hat tip to Aaron and uh, uh, and Jason for early on talking about this, but but like even to you, Shadi. I mean, the the extent to which I mean, what I what I want to I guess at least fess up to is that like just as you said, like even to this day, even right now, going into this conversation, uh, I still have this sort of kind of uh, bias uh, uh, against um, not giving not any more like not giving credence to this sort of stuff. But I have I guess this kind of weird optimism that like if i personally am dismissive of it like it'll blow over and my like personal contempt for all of this will somehow infect and fix the world i don't know i don't know anyway just like kicking that off as a big sort of mea culpa on the whole sort yeah, of world you'll, stuff. You'll, you'll keep telling yourself that when you're when you're being carted off to the gulag yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> the gulag well look we in some sense we create our own reality right so if demir decides that he's not going to take some of these issues particularly seriously, then for him, they will not be as serious. Uh, I mean, not to be too postmodern about it, but there is something to be said for how we orient ourselves towards the world. And I should also clarify, um, people who have listened to the pod before will know that I, even I have had an ongoing concern about focusing too much on wokeness related issues there is a danger that we become defined by this still what is ultimately an important issue, but not the most important issue in the world. And, you know, it's worth mentioning that the risk of war in Ukraine is growing. So people dying in Ukraine by the hundreds or thousands versus um, like whatever woke issue we're focusing on on a given day, we have to still put things into perspective, right? 
Um, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, all I'll say about that is, I don't really follow foreign policy. It sounds like things are bad in Ukraine. I don't want lots of people to die in a Russian invasion. I've got to tell you, I don't know much about it. I don't really care that much about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I suspect for no, and I don't mean that to sound dismissive, but like the I suspect that for most Americans, right? Um, you know, what the woke stuff actually does affect their lives a lot more, or a lot more obviously than the what's going on in Ukraine. Oh, no. Like I'm, I'm totally open to arguments that what's happening in Ukraine will somehow affect the economy or national security down the line somehow. Sure. But in terms of like one's day to day life, say for example, that one is infected with the novel coronavirus. Yeah. Um, or it's rather not novel, the novel anymore, man. Then yeah, the <laughs> novel variant of the coronavirus. Um, and there's a really great medical treatment that you can get. But ah, oh, wait, you can't get it because you're white. Well, that's like a little more of an immediate threat to your well-being. And as we can discuss in a minute, that literally is happening in okay. To, to clarify, it's not just a right-wing talking point. No, I take your point, Aaron. Um, I was using <laughs> Ukraine more. Uh, yeah, more I'm, as like a metaphor I'm for kidding. things. So how about something that is more domestic? Um, criminal justice reform, the mass incarceral state, um, so on and so forth. Those are things that affect millions of people on a daily basis. Um, if we look at the prison and, and super mass supervision population. So, I mean, there are other examples that we could use, but I, I take your point that this is still pretty important. So with that, maybe how about since you mentioned something which I think will sound quite provocative to listeners and they might think that you were joking, that being white might actually lead you to be denied access to COVID treatments, potentially even life-saving COVID treatments. Can you clarify what you're referring to there to just get us oriented? Is yeah. that a real thing? Because when I first started hearing about this, I assume that it was being exaggerated or because like you think to yourself, wait a second, this can't be true. It seems self-evidently ridiculous that someone's someone being white would be the decisive factor potentially. Yeah. So so for for those who are unfamiliar here, here's what me and Shadi are both referring to. Um, as of. I guess less than a week ago, so or two weeks ago maybe, um, at least three states in the union were using race as a criterion for determining eligibility for monoclonal antibodies and other uh, COVID therapeutics. Uh, in New York, uh, minorities automatically qualify um for monoclonal antibodies because New York says that uh, non-white or his non-white race or Hispanic ethnicity sh should be considered a risk factor for COVID. And this is only, these treatments are only for high risk people. Um, and so the way that those guidelines work is if you have any risk factor, basically you, you are eligible. Uh, so for a, so an 18 year old Asian woman, for example, automatically qualifies for monoclonal antibodies in the state of New York, uh, whereas an 18-year-old white guy would have to have some kind of health condition to qualify. 
uh, in Minnesota, they had a kind of COVID risk calculator um, that gave two extra points for BIPOC status, black, indigenous, or other person of color. Um, It gave more points to that than it gave to being a 64-year-old man with hypertension. So if you're a 64-year-old man with hypertension in Minnesota under this scheme, you'd get one point, and an 18-year-old BIPOC person would get two points. So if they only had enough monoclonal antibodies for people who scored two points but not one point, you know, you'd be out of luck. Point of clarification, though, I'm sure they take into account age, right? So the 64-year-old white do. dude. So they, they do, but in in Minnesota, the way they take it into account is just, are you 65 or older? Or it's, do you have, like, hypertension and you're over 55? So if you are 64 with hypertension, you get one point for being, for having hypertension and being over 55. All of that together is just one point. <laughs> but to get the additional bonus for uh, age, you'd have to be over 65. Uh, yeah, it's it's very arbitrary. It doesn't make sense. Um, but but yeah, it, 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 and, it, and to be clear, age itself, independent of any other comorbidities, counts for two points, which is the same as BIPOC status. <laughs> so it's saying it's saying that being a senior sit that being black, indigenous, or Asian is just as much of a risk factor as being over sixty five. There is, of course, absolutely no evidence that that is true. Um, and in Utah, they have a similar risk calculator, um, which gives you two points automatically for being not white, but only one point for congestive heart failure and a number of other conditions. Um, And then there are even some private hospital systems that have adopted these schemes, and those are even more radical. Uh, This has now been, they they got rid of this after there was controversy, but um, SSM Health, which is a very large hospital system in the Midwest and South, 23 hospitals, they allocated seven points to people who are non-white. That is more than hypertension, obesity, diabetes, and asthma combined. All of that combined is six points, but race is seven. Uh, And you needed to score like 20 points to get the therapy. So just by being non-white, you're basically half of the way there. Um, So Aaron, two questions before just to sort of orient people here. Uh, First, uh, uh, to clarify, you're reporting for... uh, Free Beacon triggered a lot of, I think, action on this. And maybe you can like tell us uh, what kind of like follow up there's been and and what's changed. But the other interesting thing, and I think it's important to orient people, is like where is this guidance coming from initially Ah, in your initial reporting? So, well, so let me let me let me take those in the opposite order. So, so the guidance is actually coming in part from the Food and Drug Administration because when the Food and Drug Administration issued its emergency use. Uh, authorizations for both monoclonal antibodies and the new antiviral pills, they say this is for high-risk people, and then they list a set of things that can make someone high-risk, and that includes age, diabetes, obesity. You've heard all the risk factors. But then they also include this little note where they say, other medical conditions or factors, and then in parentheses, for example, race or ethnicity, can also place someone at higher risk for severe COVID. And so what Utah and Minnesota did in their triage schemes was they cited that 
line in the guidance explicitly and said FDA has acknowledged that race and ethnicity alone, apart from other factors, can itself put you at higher risk of COVID. And thus, that means we are justified in incorporating this as a separate variable in our risk calculators. So they explicitly said that they were drawing on the FDA for this. Now, I mean, I think one could argue that that's sort of a ridiculous interpretation. They didn't literally, the FDA did not literally tell states to engage in unconstitutional race discrimination, but they did supply kind of the the disclaimer that was used to justify the discrimination. So now what happened when this was reported? Well, by you. the hospital- Yes, by me. Um, uh, uh, New York didn't back down um, at all, although they're now being sued by Stephen Miller's legal group, so we'll see what happens there. Um, uh, Utah said it was reevaluating its score calculator and made some changes to it, but it didn't remove race and ethnicity, so Utah is still racially discriminating in the provision of life-saving COVID care, to be clear. Uh, the hospital system claimed that it had retired the scoring calculator last year, um, the day that I published my story and the day that, um, a legal group announced that it was suing, uh, it's unlikely that that's actually true, but that's what they said. And obviously Um, that's coincidental. Yeah, totally a coincidence. I'm sure. Um, they also, though, they did not deny that they were using it. So they they basically admitted to having illegally racially discriminated, like, but then they said, but then they said, well, but like the evidence we had at the time suggested race really was this big a risk factor, but then we got more data. I I do want to talk about that specifically though. So, so wrap this up, but let's then talk about like, yeah. Well, then, and then the last thing, the last thing, the last thing, the last thing, um, in Minnesota after my story, uh, they just totally removed race from the guy. Okay. Point point of, yeah. you know, not to not to not to not to be self-aggrandizing, but it is quite possible that by writing the piece, I like saved an elderly white person with hypertension. <laughs> quite possible. <laughs> okay, that's amazing. I haven't really met a lot of people who just save older white women or men, I guess, on just a regular basis through the reporting. Um, so kudos, Aaron. Um, point of clarification: I want to make sure I'm getting this right. So you would, I think that you had said earlier that an 18-year-old Asian woman, Asian person in the New York scheme would have priority over a 64-year-old white person. Minnesota. Sorry, Minnesota. Minnesota. That is actually, that's actually true. That's a thing. So it's, it's that, it's, the gap is that large. 18-year-old Asian who has- Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, mean, if they, if, if it's not, if I misinterpreted that, They've now had a week or more to explain, oh, no, we weren't really doing that. You misread the guidelines. Of course, they didn't do that. They removed race from the guidelines, which suggests that I was correct. Yeah, so just one thing that I I wanted to clarify for folks who may get the wrong idea. When they heard someone chuckling in the background whenever you said BIPOC, Aaron, um, I don't mean any disrespect, but I can't help laughing whenever anyone says 
BIPOC in real life because like I, I see it written sometimes or on Twitter. I'm just not actually used to seeing it. No, sorry, sorry. Hearing, no, hearing it, hearing it is a part that is like really. So I just chuckled. I just want to clarify that. But please go on. Um, I think we wanted to. Um, you were talking about where some of this comes from, Aaron. Yeah. So. Well, well. So yeah, the FDA is where a lot of it comes from. Um, at the level of just where they're getting the guidance, but then I take it you want to talk about sort of the the, the deeper philosophical justification. Yeah. So where does where does yeah. this come from? Yeah. Because I think so, so, one so thing look. that we're struggling with, or at least I'm struggling with, is we're laughing at these things, and and obviously this is a serious issue, and I think there is a tendency sometimes to look at this stuff and to think it's so absurd and ridiculous. And then that makes it harder for us as observers to take it seriously on its own terms, in part because we don't necessarily understand the philosophical justifications for it. That's definitely something we want to cover. I think it's also important to talk about the causality issue, um, because I think that, and maybe that's actually a better place to, to start yeah, before the, philo- yeah. the philosophy. So do you just want to clarify well, for us the debate about what causes what? Basically. Right. So, 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 so. Look, the stated justification for this is that black and Hispanic and, and indigenous people are at higher risk of hospitalization and death from COVID, um, and just that what that means is, statistically speaking, it is true um, that certain racial groups tend to suffer adverse outcomes from COVID at higher rates than other racial groups. Um, now, obviously, as a legal matter, that's kind of irrelevant. You know, the the, the Supreme Court uh, has said that you can't, I mean, well, the, the law says you can't discriminate on the basis of race. And the way, you know, the Supreme Court has interpreted that is, you know, you could only take race into account if there were no better race-neutral proxies that you could use to achieve a compelling government interest. And of course, you know, reason, presumably, that minorities are at higher risk of COVID has to do with socioeconomic status and having more comorbidities and all these other things, which all are race-neutral proxies that you could just use instead of race. Um, Now, I think what you will hear, and I'm not so convinced it's true, but this is the argument, you'll hear that even when you control for socioeconomic status and neighborhood and comorbidities, and everything, that there are still racial disparities. Um, I think that those tend to be very, very small once all the proper statistical controls are added, and to the extent they persist, it's not at all clear why they do. I mean, maybe it's genetic, maybe it is systemic racism. That's the answer that, that sort of activists, I think, prefer. Um, it could also be that certain groups are simply more likely to proactively seek treatment than others. You know, there's all sorts of things it could be. Um, but Aaron, can I, I think- can I ask you just one question on this? Cause you know, I mean, Shadi was latching onto the Asian woman, 18 year yeah. old. Uh, and, and the absurdity here I think is, is because that it, it like in our oh, minds, to- in our, in our sort of like racist minds, we think of Asians as, as, you know, unless they're first generation off the boat, 
uh, and they might be mired in poverty more. Like a, a, a young Asian woman's going to be like, you know, first, second, third generation is already going to be like making her way up yeah. the socioeconomic ladder. So like that's but, the, but the even, absurdity, right? Like, yeah. The, well, the, but the other absurdity is that 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 Asians are have the lowest death rate, I believe, of COVID, lower than white people. Right. I mean, but so. there's conspiracies around that too, right? Like that that like this was engineered by the Chinese and to scare well, Asians and kill whitey. Sure. I, no, I haven't heard that one personally. I have, I have heard that one. I'll even put it in the show notes. I'm sure. I uh, anyway. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm sure. I'm sure you should. You can submit that to uns.com, Demir. Um, no, no. But but uh, let, what I'm what I'm getting at, Aaron, is this uh, on on that question? I mean, because you said like there's there's many like non-racial proxies for for this sort of stuff. Um, what's you know I could I I could understand. The systemic racism argument on the on the on the face of it, if not on the merits, but on the face of it, let's posit there is this kind of systemic racism, and the only way to like approach it is uh, by you know, and you can measure it in outcomes even marginally, let's say, and the only way to really address it is by giving racial preferences to life-saving drugs uh, for COVID. Let's let's grant a, a good chunk of that premise. The question for me is though, is is that like, how do Asians fall into this? That's the part that I find, and this to me is is where the, you know, what Shadi was mocking earlier about the whole existence of the BIPOC category is kind of a big tell. Because, you know, BIPOC just ends up being kind of like the activist move to put all people of color under one umbrella yeah. for political reasons, which is basically all people who are not white are going to vote Democrat and therefore- Or rich Hispanic like Ted Cruz. I mean, we can kind of, there's a number of examples that we can cite okay, or but, me. Well, but I'm Shadi, a I mean, like, of to, color. To my, to my mind, I mean, the other one I would bring up is like, you know, Obama's daughters. Like, you know, I mean, but we can we can go there as well, right? I mean, you, you, you don't get, uh, you know, an upbringing that is more- privileged, uh, you know, than Obama's daughters. And, you know, again, we can argue what kind of adversity they've had to climb just by the very uh, color of their skin, the kind of implicit uh, discrimination they may have faced throughout their lives. I'm not going to get into that. But but still, you know, it's the question of how are you, how are you, 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 you measuring this and how you even justify it? Do you know what I mean? So, so that's why I'm latching on to the young 18 year old Asian woman. Um, and, and the, 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 so maybe Aaron, you can you can talk a little bit about that that like that categorization. Well, well, so yeah. Look, look. If this were this is the thing, their argument is that it's about risk, but it's clear that that's not true because, as you say, if it were true, they wouldn't lump all non-white people together because not all non-white people have the same risk. In fact, they have wildly divergent risk profiles. Yeah. Black people are at much higher risk than Asians. Furthermore, although a couple of the risk calculators do take sex into account, um, since men are more likely to die than women, um, you know, the Minnesota and New York ones don't, despite, again, sex being a a well-documented risk factor, which unlike race, there's no question that that's largely biological. With race, you know, it's more a social thing, you know, associated with discrimination or socioeconomic status or something. That's the putative mechanism. But with sex, I mean, it's it's because sex hormones and chromosomes have an effect on the immune system. Um, and yet, of course, that's not anywhere in the New York guidelines and it's not anywhere in the Minnesota ones. Um, so it's pretty clear that the risk argument is kind of 
a post hoc rationalization for the real reason they're doing this, which is that they believe that there is this kind of white supremacist Leviathan that has somehow hurt all non-white people um, that needs to be dismantled through race-conscious means. I mean, that is really the core of what we've been calling wokeism, and that is, I think, the sort of Occam's razor justification for these policies. And of course, you know, you can't really say that out loud if you're the New York City Health Department, so, you know, you come up with this bullshit um, post-hoc rationalization, but that's clearly all it is. Um, but I, one thing I want to clarify for for listeners, because it may not be self-evident, because I think that if you look at the New York Times, Washington Post, other mainstream outlets, they keep on talking about um, disparate outcomes with COVID and that, you know, as, as we've been saying, if you look at the numbers, the raw numbers, um, black people have suffered more on average than white people when it comes to COVID. Now, the thing that... Th- the thing that is hard to explain quickly and easily is that just because black people have been disproportionately affected by COVID does not mean it's their blackness that's causing the disparate outcome. That is the jump that people have to make. It's a yeah. correlation causation issue. So the 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 um the fact of being black or being born black is not what causes someone to be more likely to be hospitalized or die from covid it's the fact that black people in the aggregate um have lower incomes on average and and worse access to healthcare um so on and so forth than the color of their skin now that might now that I'm explaining it, it might sound almost too obvious. Of course, how could skin color, unless there's some genetic thing, um, which is not what I, don't, I think anyone is claiming, um, that obviously skin color doesn't make someone die or be more likely to die from COVID. So, um, and that's why it's important when you do studies like this, and this is what we do in political science when we run regression analysis and so forth, is that you have to control for the confounding variables. So it happens to be the case, unfortunately, that black people on average are more likely to be obese than than people than than say white people on average, um, or black people are more likely to ha- uh, to be diabetic. Now we can go into like why that might be the case, but then but then it's not the blackness. So if you have a very if you have a rich, as you said, Demir. Um, if you have a rich um, black person, very high income, um, access to the best health care in the country, it just doesn't make any logical sense to prioritize that over a poor white person living in an urban center that doesn't have good access to health care or hospitals. It just that that's yeah. that is the fundamental yeah. disjuncture here. Is that is, is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I I also think it's important to note that the people that that ultimately what this people will boil down what this boils down to is people will say, all right, fine, shoddy, but you know what? Even when we control for stuff, we're still gonna we still find some marginal difference or whatever, and 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 ultimately, you know, the very fact that you're concerned about causality that's who care you know who cares right? This is all about outcomes, and here's the thing. If you take that argument to its logical conclusion, then why 
not support taking race into account in algorithms that determine housing prices? Why not uh, support Why taking not that indeed? into account? <laughs> Why not support taking that into account uh, when it comes to predictive policing and where police go? Because you know what? Uh, black people do commit a disproportionate share of the crime in the United States. Uh, and those differences do subside, but don't entirely go away when you control for socioeconomic status. Uh, so, you know, if you want, if you just say, well, it's all about outcomes, you know, we should just look at the statistics. Well, then why not have a kind of, you know, technocratic police state that uses race as a factor to determine who can get credit on the housing market and where police go? And of course, this is dystopian and absurd and it's illegal and we've said it's illegal. There are laws on the books that prevent you from taking race into account in this way, but that's the precise structure of the argument that people who defend this stuff in medicine are making. And the fact that they won't acknowledge that I think is very telling and why I, though I do think it's useful to spell out in some detail why this stuff is wrong and the arguments don't work. I do want to just note that all the people making these arguments are shamelessly hypocritical and we shouldn't pretend like they're not, or like they're operating in good faith because just, they're, they're patently not operating in good faith. Okay, well, a couple things. Well, first, you, you mentioned that even if you control for socioeconomic status and so on, there still might be marginal differences. But in, in your article, you cite um, a study in the New England Journal of Medicine, which does control for those clinical characteristics and sociodemographic attrib- attributes. And they conclude, if I understand correctly, that being black is not... Core is not associated with higher um, uh, hospitalization than white people. So, I mean, there are, I just want to clarify that there are yeah. studies that actually try to run the numbers that suggest that when you do control for these other factors, the differences um, either um, disappear completely or largely disappear, correct? Yes, that's right. And that's because being black, being black is obviously not a disease or, or a comorbidity, right? And that's what's so absurd here is that we're almost treating someone's yeah. ethnicity as being equivalent to having diabetes or right. being asthmatic or being obese. Now, obviously, the one caveat to this is there are certain illnesses that really do correlate very strongly with race for genetic reasons. Yeah. But it's worth noting that when, so so like for example when when there's there's like an algorithm that's used to measure like kidney activity or you know it's used in in various aspects of medicine and it, it, it and or a spirometer there, there's things where you actually make an adjustment based on race in medicine because most people uh, most people of African descent have genes that like do something to the number your creatine levels or whatever. And so if you don't make the adjustment, you'll end up having inaccurate information about their clinical status. But it's worth noting, right, that even there, what's going on is race is the best available proxy, you know, unless you just screen everybody and sequence their entire genome. But it's still not race itself. It's a particular gene that is just much more commonly associated with people of African descent. Um, so, you know, it's, I don't think it's racist or, 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 or 
problematic if you say, well, you know, we haven't sequenced everyone's genome yet, so, you know, who are we going to spend, you know, who are we going to recommend get a screening for sickle cell anemia? Well, like, black people tend to have it much more often, so that's going to factor into whether we recommend a particular individual patient get the screening. But again, you know, that is not the same thing as allocating, distributing life-saving care on the basis of race, that's using race as the best available proxy for information about an individual's right. I, but, clinical risk factors. And the, 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 the fascinating thing, though, I mean, it's just not, not to, like, beat the dead horse, but it's what I was getting at earlier, is, like, and what, what where, where this is a screaming lie about it, is that, like, by, by lumping in a, a, a set of supposedly politically um, uh, convenient allies, race allies, into one category, and then uh, marking... Mm-hmm things like that. That's the big tell on this, right? Yes. I mean, because, because uh, you know, everything you explained right now, I mean, these are complicated issues. And, and uh, you know, genetics and socioeconomics and all these things play out in very complex ways. And, you know, getting care to people uh, based on that is, is not so out of the, out of the, 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 the norm. So, I mean, again, maybe just to sort of like loop back before we delve into some other, like, I think, related questions on this. What happened was is that that uh, at some point in a in a you know in a faddish um, uh, <clears throat> sort of uh, spell, somewhat at, at the FDA felt like giving a nod to racial equality and justice, and uh, put a line in their guidance, their very broad guidance, that in fact one of the determinant things is uh, uh, you know. Uh, race and systemic racism, which leads to socioeconomic outcomes, which leads to worse outcomes. So let's just put this in. It'll cause no harm. We'll caveat it enough in the FDA guidance and it's fine. This then trickles down to, uh, again, this kind of woke ideology is floating around. There's administrators, hospital administrators, uh, health system administration administrators in these various states that uh, are perhaps, uh, you know, also want to do the right thing. They latch onto this and then actually twist it and blow it up into this absurdity that you've latched, that you've you've identified and 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 uh, and publicized at this point. Uh, and now they're backtracking off of it basically because it's indefensible on the face of it, right? I mean, is that is that a, yes, a fair sort of accurate. like tell of what what basically happened here? So I mean, you know, to go back to my opening sort of remarks on this, this is where like my own. Um, you know, uh, poo-pooing of the woke thing. And this is, I think, something that, that you were arguing early on at, 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 the, uh, at the American Interest when I first met you to me. It was that it's, it's, it's that this pernicious ideology sort of gets into people's heads, even necess- not necessarily ill-meaning people's heads. And they're not thinking, they're bureaucrats, they're perhaps morons, and, uh, uh, you know, they, they latch onto this stuff. And, and in, in thinking that they're doing whatever the right thing is and this sort of stuff, you get these sort of, I mean, uh, just moral grotesqueries is really what, you've, what you've, you've, you've hit on here, right? Is that, is that all fair? Mm-hmm. Like, as a, as yeah, a description? Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I would maybe add one thing, which is, you know, y- you, I think, inadvertently used a, a construction that I would maybe shy away from, which was that it gets into people's heads. And that's true. I mean, it does. But that kind of implies it's a, a, a mind virus and that the ideas just sort of colonize people's brains and turn them into woke zombies. But that's not quite how it works, right? What happens is it's institutionalized. It becomes 
it becomes the operating system of various institutions, which are often adopting this stuff out of a complicated combination of self-interested and ideological incentives. Um, it's not all about just self-interest, but it's also not, that's not orthogonal to it necessarily. Um, you know, there's threat of lawsuits, there's, you know, wanting to avoid bad PR, etc. Then there's also, I think, a desire to just look more, bureaucracies like to look at outcomes because bureaucracies can't measure intent. So there's just a natural affinity. Um, yeah, I think there's a kind of elective affinity between bureaucracies and wokeism because what does wokeism do? It says, well, intent doesn't matter. It's all about outcomes. Uh, and so all of these factors, I think, kind of incentivize big institutions to just take kind of race consciousness as a given and then once it's just normalized in kind of the practice of institutions, that's how I think it gets into people's heads. Not like, you know, someone reads Foucault and it's like, oh, whoa, you know, we need to dismantle the West. It's, it's, and in fact, I think Foucault has almost nothing to do with this. It's, it's you know, people just operate in race-conscious institutions and are like, well, yeah, you know, that's just, that's just what we do. Um, and, and don't even realize that they're kind of, operating according to a script or an ideology. Uh, and that, I think, is the thing that is really important to appreciate about all this. Okay, I want to I bring up something that I don't know if I... I don't know if I've brought it up properly before in a Wisdom of Crowds episode, and I've thought about this, and I, I want to take it seriously. So part of our mission at Wisdom of Crowds is to take ideas seriously, even ideas we don't like or think are dangerous. I don't think we always give the woke perspective its due. And I think it's hard because obviously we don't like it. So and we have to, in some sense, self-correct for for that bias. But um, if we wanted to, to steel man the woke position on this topic, if we want to give it the best, most generous hearing it can possibly get. We've done a little bit of that already, but I do wonder if we push back with everything that we're saying now, and it sounds clear to us and and obvious to us, and we go back to these woke advocates who support race triage in hospitals for life-saving treatments, and we say, guys, let's talk sense here. Here's why these ideas don't hold muster. I mean, do they have a good response to it? And I think what we've got what we've gotten to is that when they when they hear pushback, they oftentimes buckle, but sometimes they don't, right? And I'm wondering if we want to dig down to the the philosophical origins of these ideas. It, is there anything else that we can kind of latch onto that is more understandable or justifiable? where we're like, okay, they kind of have a point on X or Y or whatever, or or is it just ridiculous in terms of the philosophical uh, origins? <laughs> well, <laughs> look, I think this particular thing is ridiculous and all the, the attempts to justify it have been facially absurd and the people who are, even if they're not defending it, kind of running interference saying, well, you know, 
when Trump talked about it, he mischaracterized it or trying to change the subject. So, I just think it's all bad faith Aaron, and, and it, it, silly. Give, but, us, give us some more of these actual defenses here that you've heard, because honestly, I mean, I've, I've picked up some, you know, and sort of side fights around, uh, you know, as you were, uh, you know, talking about this stuff on Twitter. But but give us what you would say were the 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 most spurious and maybe the the best faith attempts to defend it, uh, even if it is, this, as you say, sort of running interference. Uh, like just give us, yeah. a, give us a sense of that. Well, I mean, the best faith attempt is to sort of play this game where you say, well, like, but, you know, doesn't poverty and all these other social things affect health outcomes, so why can't we take race into account, you know, if you'd be okay with taking those other things into account? I think it's pretty clear that, um, A, those other things aren't actually protected classes, first of all. So there's a legal distinction. And B, um, given the, just the history of the United States, uh, you know, I, it's obviously, I think, more poisonous to take race into account. Talk to me about, and, the, talk to me about the protect protected status, because I, 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 I maybe 30% understand what you meant there. But oh, what, so, what so, exactly so, so under, under civil rights law, yeah. right, race... Sex, uh, well, now with Bostock, sexual orientation and gender identity, um, and a number of other characteristics, you can't, these are things you can't discriminate right, on. Right. Uh, poverty is not one of those. Poverty you can discriminate on, sure. Okay. Uh, but, you know, but, but, okay, but, but, uh, okay, but, but, but this is, I do want us to get on this eventually because I, the thing that but, jumped out at me, go ahead, say, say your piece. Well, I'll, but the I'll, other thing, the other thing I would say is, you know, race, it's like, again, it may have some independent predictive value here. It may, although I'm skeptical, but it, it clearly, I mean, you use the example of the Obama kids, right? Like, like the idea that that alone, that the Obama kids are at higher risk of COVID just because they're, I mean, you just, you say it out loud and it's like, it's obviously absurd. So, I mean, so that's, that's why on this one, I just think the woke side is so, it's so facially ridiculous that when people play these games it's like it's just you can see right through it i I mean i think the other thing people will do is they will take us someone will read my story or they'll have watched fox news cover my story as i suspect may have happened with a certain former president who was in the news recently uh you know watches tucker um who actually i think basically characterized it correctly just in a very incendiary way uh, no, I wasn't, but he he did a segment on the story, and it was it was it was you know it was Tucker, but he was he was not he was not wrong about basically anything he said. Maybe one thing that was a little inaccurate, but um, but you know then of course, like Trump at his rally was like you know, and now they're not in New York. Like if you're white, you go to the back of the line for vaccines. And- and monoclonal antibodies, and of course, you know, you get an AP fact check that says, ah, no, you don't go to the back of the line. They just take race into account as one of many factors that determines whether you can receive life-saving care. So in their fact check, it's like, they they do acknowledge, it's like, but it's based on studies that, you know, black people are at higher risk. So, like, they don't actually deny that, like, Trump is directionally correct. They just say, well, technically, you know, they don't put white people at the back of the line. Therefore, Trump is spreading racist lies because, you know, he's a white supremacist, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, look, you know, yeah, Trump is not great. I mean, he's demagoguing. He's also objectively a lot more correct about this one than he is, say, about the election, you know, on the merits. Of course, yeah. Well, so... <laughs> If I could just, though, one thing I don't fully get, though, 
is if we're talk if we're saying it's facially ridiculous and that there isn't really a proper good faith argument in this particular issue then how is it that something so self-evidently ridiculous can spread i mean that that's what's really concerning here because if what if if what you're saying is true it it means that ridiculous ideas can actually take hold of very influential well i guess that's maybe obvious to everyone who listens to this podcast i guess that is sort of an ongoing theme is that that is in fact possible but but it makes it harder for us to fight against it um because if these bureaucracies are so easily susceptible to some of the dumbest arguments that we can think of at any given moment then what hope is there um i mean because this is a very extreme case where on a lot of other things, there is a good faith argument for woke ideas. So I think that on some issues, Nicole, Nicole Hannah-Jones maybe has like part of a point on certain issues. If you look at, you know, issues around, you know, um, when she talks about criminal justice, I probably agree with her on like 40 percent, you know. So I think that, um, you know, when as long as she's not talking about disparate outcomes, as long as Ibram Kendi is not talking about starting up some department of anti-racism and is focusing on actual tangible issues that happen, that you can measure, that millions of black people have been um, condemned to outrageous sentencing um, when it comes to how long they have to spend in prison for relatively minor offenses like pot possession, for example. Those are things that we that we can say, okay, there is a point that they make that we have to take seriously. And if we're, but this is different because I don't see any, if there isn't any like viable point that is being made that has a justifiable philosophical basis according to what we might call public reason, which is sort of a, Raw, a Rawls joke, um, then, you know, we're stuck, right? How do we well, reason he, with these people? Yeah, I mean, but look, well, so look, I mean, if you were going to steel man this, I think the steel man of this is the same kind of as the steel man of, of all wokeism, which is just, look, look at these huge racial disparities. Aren't these sad? You know, look at look at the record of race-neutral attempts to correct them. Have they worked? Well, not really. The disparities are still here. So maybe to correct them, we need to do something race conscious. I mean, that's, that is the argument at the end of the day. And I, you know, I think that it gets its force from the fact that the race disparities are often really, really big and glaring. You know, I think with COVID, they exist, but are frankly exaggerated, especially once you take the, the other factors into account. But, you know, with a lot of other things, yeah, they're they're big. Um, I mean, to be blunt, like, I guess the sort of, well, there's sort of two counterpoints I'd make. One, just focused on the medical thing, is the idea that this, that sort of deprioritizing white people is actually going to result in much better care for black people. I just, it, it, just it requires you to have just like no intuitive sense of how the medical system works. I mean, th this is not 
this is not going to result in like far greater numbers of black people getting treatment they need. It just to, to even think this is going to happen, you have to make all these assumptions that are very unrealistic. Wait, treatment um, they, don't, they need. I mean, specifically, what we're talking about here is a narrow case, which is getting monoclonal. Uh, antibodies yeah, which, to treat which a also very narrow case. Well, and also, and also, like, frankly, I mean, I mean, just you know, I'm sure this is not all of it, but I, I suspect that you know, privileged, wealthy people of all races are just going to be more aware of this treatment and more likely to get it, and that may itself explain some of the racial disparities you see. But like, you know, just sort of these kind of blunt scoring systems that deprioritize whites. I don't think that's going to really solve that problem. Um, but, you know, the other thing I would say is, is look, like, it may be, you know, even putting aside the question of whether it would actually close the disparities, there's also this question of, well, even if it did, would it do so at an unacceptably high cost? And I mean, I think in this case, the answer is, yeah, it would be establishing a precedent for effectively, like, a racial caste system in medicine, and it would, pr- and it could potentially result in lar even if you close the disparities it could still result in more people on net dying it's like you know if, if we're all equal but like we're all equally dying at super high rates i mean that's not necessarily better than a world in which there are some disparities but there's a much lower death rate so and that's the, the that's just a special case of the the counter argument in all of these examples which is even if you assume that the woke race conscious policy will work there are costs to it right and you know yeah like a world in which you know black and white people are incarcerated at the exactly the same rates would be nice but if you try to socially engineer that under current conditions in practice it's going to mean either that you throw lots of white people in jail who didn't do anything wrong, or that you let out a lot of people from jail who uh, probably are dangerous and kind of do need to be locked up because they're not just like the guy who was dealing pot on the street. They're like violent criminals. And then you'll have more crime and you'll have more people being shot. And okay. there are trade-offs. Like, But... but- but those trade-offs, but, but there might be some people, and this is just my attempt to really take this argument as seriously as possible, and from my understanding of what some folks argue, they are willing to accept those costs, that for them, racial equity or whatever they want to call it actually takes precedence over, let's say, the number of people who die in a particular community, that, that they would say that some things have to be done even if they are in some technical sense unjust, because black people have suffered from injustices for the last 300, 400 years. Why is it so bad to have white people suffer from actual injustice for 30 to 40 years? If we play that out, like, that, wow. that is no, that's an argument that we can understand. No, but but Shadi, let me let me but let me just go back to the part where this breaks down. And it's not about black people; it's about Asians, for fuck's sake! Like, <laughs> like I'm, I'm serious. Like, this is where it comes down to. This is where the absurdity comes out of, on this. Because honestly, I'm willing to grant all that. You know, like I'm even willing to go down that road. My counter argument to that would be. Uh, my dear activist friends, you are like brewing an insane racial backlash for yourself. And 
black people are never going to be the majority in this country. Your allyship with other, uh, you know, non-whites is breaking down. This is a, a, a disastrous policy maneuver you're going to do, even if you think in terms of justice and other nonsense categories that don't exist. But like the the um, the thing that's striking to me about this is, and I, I just want to go back a little bit, Aaron, because. You said one of the, the, the arguments, one of the, the plausible arguments to use, they'd say, well, <clears throat> you know, you accept in the breach that, you know, one might want to address this socioeconomically. I personally don't have a problem with that. Actually giving poor people yeah, uh, I don't the, 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 the ability to jump the line on something like this. I personally have no problem with that. I think what's interesting about it, what gets, sometimes gets elided in the way we talk about this issue. And this is not like to, I think, really give, because I, 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 I I'm making a very clear case here that I think the, the racial preference thing is absurd because it privileges uh, races that are not being discriminated against. And BIPOC is a dumb category for that reason, I think. You know, all the sort of uh, paranoia about like Asians getting mutilated okay, left Demir, and right. What if we narrow it to just black people then or descendants of slaves in particular? Well, well but, you know, again, I think, as I said, I think that would be a very uh, destructive policy because you won't be able to sustain it, and and majorities are going to rise up against it and crush it. And then I think that's practical, in the, in, though. That's, that's practical. You're arguing on no, practical terms. You, philosophically, I, though, are you open to that? Um, I'm not philosophically opposed to it because it's a moral aberration to that. I, as you were saying, I'm you know I'm open to that as an argument, like uh, from some sort of abstract justice thing. I think it's a very well, stupid argument. But but let me just say, let me just latch onto one thing which I think is important on this on the on the hospital on the the fact that we're talking about medicine here. Um, and this is something that I, you know, in reading your pieces and preparing for this, it really jumped out at me. Um, it's the fact that like really what we're facing, and I think this is a first time for us uh, in the United States, because we have such a market-based system with this like private healthcare like slathered on top of it, is that like this is for the first time we're getting a taste of what like nationalized healthcare looks like. Um, say like the NHS, for example, where there's rationing. This is the first time in, well, certainly in my lived memory, that medicine and medical care has had to been rationed in this country. We've always been, that's been hidden from us because we've had these these, these uh, absurd uh, healthcare systems that basically, you know, if you're uh, in my sort of socioeconomic class, you have a steady job somewhere that's providing healthcare, you don't have to think about it. But as soon as you fall out of that comfortable thing, uh, the, the, the money does the rationing for you in this sort of thing. In COVID, because of this like sort of command structure of how things have been going, like we've we've for the for the first time grappling as a society as a means of rationing scarce resources among the population, and so this is why these sorts of fights are emerging right now. I think if you roll it back a little bit and say, uh, are we comfortable with uh, just rationing purely on socioeconomic things, and implicitly, maybe even out loud, saying as a result, uh, you know. Uh, we are doing this for reasons of racial iniquity because we recognize that in this country, socioeconomically, black people are affected by this and therefore, et cetera. I, I, I would still, you know, not be comfortable by, you know, letting uh, Malia Obama get like preferential access because she's super privileged. And I think the this is on the on the limits where the, the sort of like racial category breaks down. Um, but I think we really do need to talk about how how this tells us also something about our society, how if we were to have like a social safety net, how much, how impossible it would be for us right now to even apportion such a thing, because we can't even think about equity, you know, outside of, uh, uh, in, in clear ways in this country anymore. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I, 
I, I would, there, I would but... say, yeah. I mean, I, I would, I would say this. Um, I think most people would argue a that unlike race, socioeconomic status just intrinsically almost at least in the United States without as big of a welfare state, intrinsically limits access to care and thus is intrinsically a risk to health in a way that race is not intrinsically. So I think that's a big part of why I have a kind of different intuition about using class. And then also, you know, there's just a basic idea that, you know, the people who are at the bottom of society is sort of the Rawlsian argument, just, you know, we should set up society so that they are taken care of. And, I just think it's not actually true that you're at the bottom of society just in virtue of being black and thus in deserving of special treatment because, yeah, you know, Malia Obama is not at the bottom of society. Um, you know, a poor black kid from Anacostia or for that matter, a poor white guy from rural Appalachia, those both strike me as, you know, people who, who ought to maybe get some priority for care. Um you know, I will say too, like, I don't, I don't love the, I don't love it when people try to sort of get out of the kind of tough philosophical questions about distributive justice by saying, oh, well, we should just have more because, well, of course, you know, but we don't live in that world. So I'm not trying to do that. Um, I do think that there are real questions here that need to be answered. It's, it's kind of unavoidable. You have to, you know, come up with a policy to allocate this stuff somehow. I do think it's worth noting that we could be facing maybe fewer of these decisions if, you know, we had upped hospital capacity more than we did, or if we had, if Biden had um, purchased at risk more of the Pfizer pills. I know that they take a long time to produce, but my understanding is that he has not done quite what Operation Warp Speed did, where they just basically in advance bought up a ton of vaccines that they didn't know would work. Um, and Trump. just made bets on a lot of them. No, but like, I, I you know, but but seriously, I, I mean, I, I could be wrong. I, I mean, I know that they bought some in advance, but I don't think it was quite at the same scale. And look, some of that is because they thought that with the vaccine, it would just go away and they wouldn't need it. But, you know, that was, we would be in a different situation. And these these crisis standards of care would not be being operationalized if uh, we had handled this aspect of the pandemic response better. And, you know, that is, I think, at least partly the Biden administration's fault. It's not, I mean, he couldn't have predicted Omicron wiping out most of the monoclonal antibodies. You know, that's not his fault. But the antivirals, I mean, those could probably be further along if some people in the administration made different decisions, which I just think is fair to note. Yeah, that's definitely, I mean, the incompetence of the Biden administration, I think, is becoming clear. I mean, I think one thing that I, I, just to shift gears slightly on the- That's it for the main episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider signing up on our website, wisdomofcrowds.live, and become a paying member. As I said at the start, you'll get thought-provoking essays by me and Shadi delivered to your inbox, as well as bonus episodes. See you on the other side.